Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. On today's episode, Adrian speaks with Matt O'Connor, CEO of O'Connor Beef, discussing supply chain pressures, exports and China, current market conditions and local business in a COVID world. Hello, everyone. I'm Adrian Redlick, the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital, and this is our first recording of Line of Credit podcast, so our very first edition. And for the first edition, we've got a good friend of ours, Matt O'Connor, who's CEO of O'Connor Beef. O'Connor Beef's one of the largest export abattoirs in southern Australia. Matt's part of a third generation of O'Connors who have been active in producing beef and sourcing beef from Gippsland's finest. So welcome, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, Matt's also been a standing member of the Merrick's Capital Agricultural Advisory Committee, and so he's actively involved in his area of specialty in advising us on loans and investments, particularly in the agricultural supply chain, but particularly in the beef sector. So welcome, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Adrian, and uh, good to be here and a, a pleasure to be a part of your first podcast. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's great. And I think, you know, we're really looking to... Uh, showcase the talent we have on our advisory board of, of experts and and i think with your your company matt and your expertise you guys have certainly been living and breathing the issues and opportunities that we've seen in the um, agricultural supply chain you know, the beef sector one of australia's big export sectors is has certainly lived and breathed ups and downs of droughts in australia floods export um, issues into china COVID issues in the US. And, and so it's been a really interesting time, but no doubt challenging. Um, over the past two years, we've really seen a number of supply chain issues that have highlighted all those things, whether it be COVID, whether it be Chinese bans, um, and we're continuing to see them across the globe um, due to the pandemic and, and geopolitical issues. So I guess when we, we look at the current supply chain issues in your industry, where do you see the pinch points today? What are you really grappling with? Well, look, thanks, Adrian. I guess you're right. We operate in an industry which is characterised by a lot of volatility. So if you're in our game, you're used to it. Operating, selling a, a product like beef in global markets comes with challenges. You know, there's always something, whether it be government interference in markets or typically, you know, weather patterns impacting on cattle supplies globally. But um, the last two years has certainly been a wild ride. You know, it's been, it's had its increased challenges with the pandemic and, and other things um, overlaying on that. But Returning to your question, you know, the current supply chain challenges that we face are in many cases like like other industries. So one of the big ones, of course, now is just, um, you know, challenges with transport and logistics with global shipping. And uh, as, as I say, our industry is not alone, but the beef industry in Australia is very much an export-focused industry. In our, in our case, we're, we're a business that 80% of our production goes to markets around the world. So global shipping delays have presented you know, enormous challenges for us and, and they're certainly not going away. In fact, we, we saw them, you know, getting worse, not better through the second half of 2021 and that still remains a problem. There's not enough capacity in the system generally. We saw the, you know, the number of shipping companies and the volume of large shipping, you know, shipping lines reduced post the GFC and that hasn't been corrected and that's a long-term lead time for more ships to be in the system. And when you see well-publicised images of hundreds of vessels parked off Long Beach, California, waiting to be unloaded, well, that's sort of you know an obvious sign of of real pinch points in the system, and as I said, they're not going away. Um, you know, and on top of that, just COVID 
challenges with staffing in ports around the world have presented us with you know delays in various destinations that we operate in. Uh, you know, and I guess one of the issues not many people think about is when you've got delays in shipping when when a typical shipment from Melbourne to Japan, for example, can be 14 days or as quick as that historically. Now it could be 30 days and that pattern's repeated in every market around the world. So it's a lot of inventory being delayed that ultimately needs to be funded by a player somewhere. And in our industry, in our case, it's largely funded by the, by the customer. That can have an impact on demand. You hit, you see in some instances, customers hitting their trade limits and being unable, unable to buy you know, more product. And you know, on top of that, we've seen a lot of issues sourcing freight equipment, you know, particularly containers, shipping lines are not returning empty containers back to Australia because it's they've got you know more profitable things to do with their vessels. So that's been a challenge. On top of that, ultimately we're we're dealing with a product that is to some degree is perishable. So you've seen high quality chilled beef in various markets around the world having to be perhaps diverted to markets that that can more rapidly import that product. You've seen exporters go from chilled to frozen options with you know extended shelf life that can present to you. And you've seen exporters like us having to actively divert product from one market, you know, to another. Again, to use the Long Beach example as, as one small example, there's there's particular products, beef products that typically would go from the east coast of Australia to the west coast of the USA. And exporters like us are finding other homes for that because you can't have products sitting on a vessel for an unlimited amount of time. So Matt, that's a, that sounds like a really challenging environment, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but we, we've, I guess we've got an interesting environment where we've got record cattle prices in Australia, um, but yet we have a logistics issue in terms of slaughtering that cattle and, and getting it through your abattoirs and others and out to the world. Can those prices hold up in that environment? And can you, you know, obviously, can you make money in that environment? How, do, how are you coping with that? Yeah, this is the big question. So I was going to say, um, you know, setting aside COVID or the pandemic, which we seem to talk about incessantly, the biggest single challenge for our industry in the last two years has been the lack of cattle. And this is a product of the size of the cattle herd being reduced down to, you know, sort of 24 and a half million a couple of years ago. Now, that herd now is, is rebuilding. Some say it'll get to 27 million this year. Players like us would like to set more like 28 million. That'll be another year, perhaps, on various various figures. But there's been a real lack of supply of cattle available for businesses like us that are, that are sourcing them. And so that's um, resulted in record prices, particularly for younger cattle. We're competing against farmers who are restocking properties. And I think to be a brave person who would predict those high prices coming to an end. There's been many experts in our industry who've tried to put a line in the sand, if you like, and say cattle prices have peaked and they've been continually proven wrong over the last 12 months. So look, my view strong cattle prices will continue. I guess our business holds the view that we won't see any real relief in cattle prices this calendar year. I think inevitably prices will will come back to some degree, ideally 2023, 2024, as, as numbers of our herd increases. But the, the one you know really significant factor that continues to underpin these strong prices is despite COVID, despite the pandemic and its impacts globally, we're, we're really seeing strong underlying demand for Australian beef globally. And we're seeing that continue to go from strength to strength and particularly in the space that, that our business operates in, which is more at the higher quality end of the, the beef spectrum. We're seeing you know, continued strong demand in that high-end food service sector globally, high-end retail. And, uh, and that's being driven by the two powerhouses of beef demand globally, which is the USA and China, where 
you know, we're seeing consumers still have pretty strong spending power and are happy to have to spend on these sort of products. Maybe we can just touch on China for a moment, because I know in, in talking to you over the years, you've worked very hard to maintain um, the accreditations into China and, and one of the, the few abattoirs here in, in Southern Australia that still delivers into China. And it's, it's been a, a good relationship for you. Is it something that you worry about each day? Um, yeah, how do you manage that? Look, I try and worry about what I can control, and that's not always in our control, right? So to answer your question, no, we don't worry about it. We, Yes, while China's an important market to Australia and indeed to us, we've always maintained a very deliberate philosophy that we want to maintain access to all markets globally. So in the case of our business, we hold every possible market access accreditation that's available, and that continues to, to underpin you know, the viability of the business. So, And that, that's well and truly pre pandemic if you like and pre the some of the strains that are evident in the in the relationships politically look under that we have very strong relationships with very good customers in that market like in all markets as i said earlier we continue to see strong demand uh yes china's a very important market to australia and to us but likewise many other outlets for australian beef we are a very diversified business and continue to be and that hasn't changed recently that's always been our position but i guess in the current environment it, it, it's it's pretty valuable Oh, no doubt with others not having access and, and such strong demand, it's clearly a, a great point of differentiation, which I know you go to great lengths to maintain that accreditation and, and respect your customer. Just coming back to your, your point and, and sort of optimism about the cattle price, it's in my experience trading commodities over the last 28 years, it's unusual for a buyer of a commodity to be bullish. Most buyers are always looking for the, the price to roll over given you're, you're buying the product and hope to buy it cheaper. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear you talk about that you just can't see prices rolling over in the next year or, or two, but you sound quite optimistic that you can still maintain margin because demand is is good. Yeah, look, we're, we're overall, we, we are optimistic uh, for a few reasons. Look, strong cattle prices provide the right sort of signals to, to producers to restock and to reinvest in the industry. And they've had that in spades the last couple of years. So that's a positive in the industry in the long term. No doubt expensive cattle prices really squeeze margins on our sector. And we're not different to many others. But as I said, we're, we're seeing strong demands globally. I think uh, in the case of our business, our positioning is perhaps different to some others. We, we don't play in much of what I'd call the commodity beef space, or we try not to. Um, we're a medium-sized player in an industry with some very large multinational competitors. And so we target certain market segments that we think we can do better than others or as well as others or with perhaps some sort of an edge. And in our experience, that's been, you know, markets like high value food service and retail customers throughout the world that are happy to pay the right price for, for a high quality article. So look, I guess the, the other answer to your question, Adrian, is that I've, like many pundits in the industry, I said earlier, I've been proven wrong trying to pick the top uh, over the last year or so. It continues to defy most people's expectations, I think. Um, that's just not myself or people in our business, but it's also also some of the industry experts that, that, that we know and some that you know who've attempted to say perhaps as, as long as 12 months ago that, you know, yeah, surely this has peaked and been proven wrong. So, and, and look, again, I'll put that down to, you know, the normal rebuild cycle that we're seeing, but also just strong demand globally. One of the things that the Federal Reserve, the RBA, other central banks allude to is transitory inflation. And at the heart of that is... Yeah, the price of a product that the consumer is buying. Um, and you seem to be suggesting that as we come out of, of lockdown, you don't see prices falling for your product. You don't sound like you expect 
um, transport prices to decline rapidly. Um, and we haven't talked about labor yet, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto as it's such a critical part of your business. But how are you feeling about the ability for transitory inflation or lower prices into the, the second half of the year? Because it's going to dictate so much of macroeconomic policy, the, the ability of, of primary producers to moderate pricing. I think it's an interesting question. Look, we're, we're certainly seeing the impact of inflation start to bite. It feels in our industry more more meaningful or more real, even in the last three to six months in terms of some of our other inputs. And a, and a good example is, is, is packaging, for example, where it's quite a, an important input for our business. And we're seeing some of the ingredients that go into flexible packaging or those costs have gone up as well as their logistics costs. And so that's putting pricing pressure. And they're, they're all trying to pass that on at the moment as an example. So there are inbuilt costs in our business. We've seen energy costs increase dramatically in Australia, particularly Victoria, over the last few years. Um, and you know, with no relief in sight. But in terms of our ability to pass on our prices to our customers, it's always a challenge. And and you do that in a number of ways. You, you do that through, as I said, dealing with particular customers or channels that can that can absorb that those sort of prices. Do deal with that uh, through a number of branding strategies where you hope uh, your brands and we've demonstrated we can do this can hold a certain price point based on quality attributes or, or branding attributes. But I think. We've seen at the higher end of the beef market globally, consumers have had a strong ability to pay high prices. The consumer in the economies we deal with has been incredibly resilient. The best customers we deal with in terms of distribution into, say, food service have found a way, despite lockdowns and COVID and interruptions, to have found a way to get that high price product into their hands and they still want to spend the money and buy it. So I don't see beef experiencing any dramatic fall in prices at the consumer level anytime soon. Well, that's no that's no uh, good for all our consumers listening out there. Everyone loves some O'Connor beef. Um, one of the things you've done as a as a strategy is is really sort of transition to that branded product where we're seeing O'Connor beef on many um, restaurant menus. And so you know you talk to in terms of the higher end of the spectrum, able to to pay for that. And it sounds like you expect that to continue. I guess like everything that comes down to jobs and employment and you know consumer consumer behavior that's been incredibly buoyant as someone that employs hundreds of people how are you seeing you know that that throughput to your own set of consumers meaning your staff i mean are you having to pay people more is it more difficult for retaining talent and um, there's lots of uh, job opportunities out there for people in the workforce uh yeah look adrian you know Retaining and sourcing labour has been an incredible challenge over the last two years, and, and and it's not going away anytime soon. So our industry, like many, relies on a on a percentage of employees that are um, recent immigrants or visa holders from various countries around the world. It's it remains quite a labour intensive industry, and obviously with borders closed since March 2020, that influx of people has, has gone away. So I think so. What that does, yeah, it puts enormous pressure on wages, and particularly from what we see at the lower skilled and semi-skilled level of employee. Uh, if you're a young, um, fit, able-bodied person with with limited skills, you've got a lot more options in terms of employment now than you had a couple of years ago. And you can, you know, if you're happy to move around, you can name your price to, to a degree. Now, that's putting enormous pressure on all players in our industry, um, whether it's farms or feedlots or distribution centres or trucking companies and, and also processing operations like ours. Look, I think um, there's been some positive news. Obviously, borders opening recently is a positive. The government's made some amendments to some visa schemes, which which will help. But this is not there's no quick fix to this. We know there's still a desire 
for people that live overseas that do want to come here on on a visa and work here but there's some roadblocks to that still now you know the obvious one is just cost of flights is prohibitive for many of these people we think that'll ease so i think it's a medium term challenge as i said there's no quick fix to this labor problem in our industry i think it'll play out over the next six to 12 months it's something that all uh, employers in our industry are working hard to try and you know do the best they can to fix but it's it's going to be continually challenging so have you made any changes to your rosters or your workday for your staff we haven't really no you know no we have you know we had the normal sort of limited working from home provisions during lockdowns but but no real changes but you haven't had to reduce shifts or the like because you just couldn't get the the labor or the skilled labor that you need to to get things done yeah sure we've had reductions in production throughput in terms of just total throughput and we've also had reductions in some of the products we've been able to produce so there are there are a variety of products that ideally you would produce every day if you had the labor to do that you know that there's certain more labor intensive products and like all players in our in the last year or so we've had to reduce some of those items so there's items we're not packing we're not producing that we would like to you know you're foregoing sales by doing that and you'd rather not Matt, I don't think it's any secret that one of our borrowers, uh, Harmony Beef, um, who are producing Wagyu cattle, um, which produce you know, certainly the higher end of the spectrum in terms of meat prices and product and, and target markets, uh, moved their production to you a number of years ago and they saw a significant in- increase in yield. And so one of the things that maybe you could touch on is what drives the difference in terms of yield and, and quality of production um, that's been able to see you create a great partnership for the likes of Harmony. Yeah, sure, Adrian. Harmony's a, a great example of, um, of a high-value customer of ours and, and a customer that delivers products into, into high-value markets globally. Um, they produce a fantastic Wagyu and Wagyu Cross product that we, uh, we produce for them. So Wagyu, given it's, it's a much higher-value product, it could almost be termed boutique or bespoke-type production. It's more complex it takes more care, it takes more skills to produce bone, slice, pack, that type of article. And it's not the sort of product that you would want to run through a normal commodity beef operation because the skill level might not be there and they might not get the standard that's required. So the end user of a Wagyu product, when he's paying $150 a kilo for a, for a steak, expects it to be perfectly produced and packed and, and vacuumed and shipped. And so that's an area that uh, we certainly have that skill set to do that. And we've been able to do it for Harmony. And they've been pretty happy with the results. So it comes down to really uh, your people. We've got a really highly skilled team at our operation out of Pakenham. Uh, many of our senior operations people have been with us for many years. They're really experienced at producing these sort of high value articles to a very high standard. It's in our DNA as a business. We've done it for our own production for the last 40 years. And in the case of Harmony, we're able to apply those skills and those capabilities to their to their wagyu uh, and, and the results in the case of that business i think have been pretty positive for them and for us so like many businesses there's an element of, sort of the dark art of and, and skill that's it's developed over generations but what innovation have we seen particularly in in australia in terms of producing and processing what's historically been a commodity product it's now become a very high-end product you know the price consumer has to pay it's certainly um, high end and, and value add, I guess, should be a, a focus. But when I visit quite a few um, processing plants and boning rooms around the country, when we look at financing various operations, some of them seem quite primitive, others seem very automated, um, and particularly the, the art of sort of freezing and, and snap 
chilling and, and the like and the logistics. Where do you see innovation going and, and the need to, to spend in that space? Um, look, I think in our industry, there's certainly been some innovation in, in the, the finished product handling and sorting and logistics end of the, end of the business. There's certainly been some innovation. Some Many operations have spent a lot of money in large you know, capex on chilling, freezing, sorting, packing type operations, which is about improving the quality of the product and, and reducing labour costs. I think at the other end of the spectrum, the industry's and we've been the benefit of it. I've seen some real innovation at the at the cattle breeding and the genetics end of our industry. So, and Wagyu, the growth of Wagyu in Australia is a good example of that. You know, the improvement in the Angus herd is a good example of that, where there's been some terrific advancements in quality of, of the herd, particularly where we operate in, in Southern Australia, where most of the high quality beef now uh, that we source is really high quality Angus, well-bred Angus with um, amazing genetics behind it, which stands up against the best Angus genetics in the world. And that's been driven by producers that have been very responsive to customer demands. We're serving customers globally that, that want the best beef and are happy to pay for it. That's that's flowed right down the line to, to producers and the genetics that we source. And it's also underpinned the growth of the Wagyu export industry out of Australia, which continues to grow and go from strength to strength. As we've, as we've discussed many times, the growth in, in feedlots has been explosive with in excess of 50% of Australian, in excess of 50% of Australian beef now coming out of feedlots when the perception globally is is grass-fed um, and certainly aligned with, with your brand. You know, you see O'Connor's grass-fed beef on you know, every restaurant menu, um, but clearly the ability for Australia and other parts of the world to grow production relies probably on innovation and technology in, in the likes of feedlots because we there's no more land, you know, the world's not producing any more land and we're limited and, and to meet, you know, we're certainly seeing it with our farmers, many of them are really driven to meet new um, environmental standards, um, applications of fertiliser, you know, in terms of organic versus synthetic. Um, and so how do you see feedlots playing out as the demand for beef grows with population growth um, and sort of changing the dynamics of particularly beef production in Australia? Yeah, I think you're right, Adrian, there's been an increase in the percentage of cattle in Australia that are that are finished on grain. I think the figures some years ago might have been closer to 30% were finished on grain and that's changed in the last few years. So, and it's it's an ongoing trend it's, and it's largely driven by consumer demand in particularly in Asian markets and North American markets that underpins that demand and that's, that's what they're used to. And I think, look, our, our feeling would be the growth of that sector will continue, but it's not unlimited in that the Australian herd, to put it in perspective, say it grows to 28 million, it's still nothing near the size of the herds in other countries around the world. So Australia can produce a limited amount of high quality beef for high quality markets globally. But our production, whether it's grass fed, and it'll continue, the Australian based cattle, cattle system will continue to be largely grass fed based, I think. Whether it's high quality southern grass fed beef out of, out of places like us, or whether it's more commodity grass fed beef out of, out of the far north of Australia, you know, production volumes out of other countries, massive grain-fed volumes produced in, in the USA and Canada, for example, huge grass-fed volumes produced in South America are going to move the dial on global trade more than the increasing grain-fed out of Australia. And do you see a growing um, premium for grass-fed globally? Is it a brand that's, that's resonating? Just that sort of notion of cattle wandering the, the pastures of Gippsland or New Zealand, et cetera, does it, does it resonate? Or when it comes down to the, the end product, ultimately people are just looking for quality? No, I think absolutely it resonates. That's been demonstrated very successfully in, in 
well in Australia by brands like ourselves and in and particularly in the USA where uh, the interest and the demand for high quality or grass-fed beef generally is is growing dramatically and that's consumer preference based on perceptions of health um, or treatment of animals or free range considerations all these things I don't think that's going away I think it's it's real and I think it's it's only growing so I've got a bit of a left field question for you Matt O'Connor beef has been located in Pakenham which is on the um, southeastern side of, of Melbourne and that area has it's fair to say it's gone ballistic as a land and house development area what used to be a rural area like many that surround melbourne sydney brisbane have certainly been um, seen explosive growth in housing how do you feel about maintaining a you know, industrial business um, in that area you know it's just the challenges i guess of, of running a logistics business and a in the in what's a growing residential area will we have to see factories continue to move out i mean logistics and and the like as a property sector has been the fastest growing it's where all the institutional money wants to go but how do you see that impacting a business as you think about your logistics and, and where you have to operate in the future yeah look you're right the city of melbourne is encroaching on our site quickly we historically considered our site well and truly located in gippsland and it still is but melbourne what was a country town our local our local town is now an outer suburb of melbourne so uh but look we're we're pretty fortunate in that we're certainly on the rural side of that town and we've got very, very large buffers and quite a lot of land around us to continue the security of our operations for, for many, many years to come. The residential development is not anywhere near where we are. And as I said, we've got hundreds of acres there, which will provide a buffer. So we think we're well placed to remain there for another you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years if need be. Uh, some of the more traditional beef and lamb production sites that were located in inner city areas, well, I'm not sure you'll necessarily see them around in those locations in 30, 40, 50 years. There's real pressure on, on those sort of sites, particularly being located on smaller sites. There's pressure from neighbours and, and EPA considerations, you know, and truck movements and 24-hour operations. So it's a challenge. I think some of the bigger sites in our industry increasingly are located in, in regional areas. No question about that. Yeah, I asked the question, as, as you know, having had you along to many site visits and site tours of abattoirs that we're looking at financing and the like. And one of the things that comes to the fore is that the permissioning by the EPA to keep operating or expand. And whilst an abattoir may have been operating in a, in a particular location for a hundred years, does seem like there's going to be pressure on certainly the inner, the inner suburban areas, which means we're going to see it have to push facilities further out, which again, you know, puts pressure on labor force, um, and infrastructure in those in those locations yeah i think it's a trend that will continue having said that it hasn't moved too quickly some of these inner city sites have survived for a while and will continue to to, to stay there the, the cost of picking up and relocating is, is pretty enormous the capital cost invested in these facilities to be on rebuild on a, on a new greenfield site is significant uh but but yeah you're no doubt correct the pressure on those sort of sites from neighbors is real and it won't go away so Matt, I think we've covered a, a lot of ground today in terms of operating a business in the COVID environment, operating an industrial business in Australia, global markets, sourcing product from regional Australia. Overall, you sound pretty buoyant about the future for our sort of our borrowers who are farmers growing beef. Certainly sounds like it's got good tailwinds. And um, like every commodity, it will have its day where it rolls. 
Um, but it also sounds like the middleman's doing okay, albeit you have to run pretty hard to um, to stay profitable and stay relevant to global exporters. Um, but overall, you sound pretty optimistic. Yeah, certainly the last couple of years has had its challenges. But as I said at the outset, if you're running a business in our industry, you're, you're certainly used to volatility. You're certainly used to significant unexpected externalities whacking you from left field uh, and, and how, to, how to manage that. Look, in our case, we set out many years ago to try and really examine our positioning in the industry. As I said, we've got some very large multinational competitors. So in our view, one of the strengths we had and we needed to really work on was to increase the ability to be nimble in our industry and to respond to opportunities as they arise in a pretty occasionally volatile market. So that you know skill set, if you like, certainly was tested through the last two years in COVID, but it, it proved to be, I don't know, a management skill that, that, that stood us in good stead. So being um being a mid-sized business in it, you know, in this sort of industry, I think you need to have some sort of edge. That's been our philosophy, you know, and I think um that ability to move with with uh, with changes in markets and changing conditions, we've seen also in the case of some of our better customers, you know, they've been incredibly resilient um, in the face of um, some of the challenges in their their operations over the last two years too. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for being our first guest on the line of credit. But most importantly, thanks for being an ongoing contributor to our advisory board. It's it's the people with industry expertise that really add to our overlay as, as financiers that I think makes all the difference to you know, providing good service to borrowers, but also most importantly, looking after our investors and preserving the capital. So really, thanks for your time today and, and thanks for your ongoing support. That's a pleasure, Agent. Thanks for the opportunity. We'll speak soon. Thank you. Merrick's Capital is an Australian and New Zealand fund manager, delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital and what we do, please head to our website, www.merrickscapital.com.